Welcome to the Chemist and Druggist Clinical Podcast. In this week's podcast, I spoke to Professor Brendan Gilmore. This was particularly exciting for me as he was my dissertation supervisor when I studied at Queen's University Belfast. We discussed why antibiotic resistance occurs and the mechanism behind it, the role of humans and animals in causing it. He explains why we have a deficit of new antibiotics in the pipeline and we discussed the pivotal role of pharmacists in helping prevent antibiotic resistance. First of all, I just want to ask, why does antibiotic resistance occur? Antibiotic resistance is an ancient phenomenon, and we know this because we find antibiotic resistance determinants in microorganisms, for example, from isolated microbiome, so from caves that have been isolated for tens of thousands of years. So, and we find them in permafrost cores that are maybe 50,000 years old. We, we see antibiotic resistance determinants. So antibiotic resistance is, is now established and well known to be an ancient phenomenon rather than a modern phenomenon that is exclusively associated with our use of antibiotics. However, it's very clear that, that man's use of antibiotics in the last sort of 70 years or so has um, really driven the evolution of antibiotic resistance in important human pathogens. So antibiotic resistance occurs as a direct response to the stress that we impose on bacteria by introduction of antimicrobial compounds and evolutionarily bacteria are well positioned to develop antibiotic resistance and indeed resistance to most environmental stressors. Microbes are the most ancient form of life. They've been around for about 3.7 billion years. They've typically evolved in environments that are not optimal for survival. There's lots of environmental stresses. So they're well positioned to develop antibiotic resistance. In the last 70 years, we have been using lots of antibiotics, and that has certainly driven the emergence of of antibiotic resistance. What's the sort of mechanism of antibiotic resistance just generally? Obviously, you mentioned that in the past there was antibiotic resistance so in that term, it was something which was just going to kill the bacteria. Yeah. And then that's what we what we call antibiotics now, or specialised form, but this is just anything which attacks the organism. Yeah, so we use very, very specific compounds that have a, a highly specific target within the, the cell. So they're typically anti-metabolic agents and they inter- interfere with some kind of cellular process. Good example of beta-lactams. They interfere with cell wall synthesis and cross-linking. So the bacteria in the presence of that stress will evolve resistance. And the mechanism really depends on the target. Um, So target modification would be one major way in which antibiotic resistance development occurs. But also an ability to change the attack the antibiotic. So beta-lactamases, for example, break down the, the lactam nucleus. Um, target modification is where the actual cellular target is in some way mutated, and we see that with things like the fluoroquinolones. Then the other major mechanism would be alteration of the ability to, of that bacterium to pump the antibiotic back out of the cell using efflux pumps. So those are the major mechanisms of resistance. We then have the, the other complicating factor in chronic infections where we have biofilms, and biofilms typically grow on surfaces and they protect themselves from antimicrobial challenges. Treating those infections, those chronic infections, with antibiotics, which because of that increased tolerance, may mean that the amount of antibiotic we use is not sufficient. And that's where you get the development of resistance, where you're stressing 
introducing an environmental stress to bacteria with suboptimal amounts of, of antibiotic. Not enough to kill them, but enough to induce resistance development. What role does human use of antibiotics and indeed animal use? Yeah, so that, that's an important consideration to make. So by weight, somewhere around 70% of antibiotic use is in animals. That really has driven increased productivity in, in, in agriculture. But it certainly does introduce antibiotic to the environment. And we find, we find antibiotic residues as a result of agriculture widespread in the environment. And again, it's the concept that you're exposing microorganisms in the environment to sub-therapeutic amounts of antibiotic that leads to the development of resistance. And then, of course, resistance isn't just confined to the bacteria that are exposed to the antibiotics. They can pass around the antibiotic resistance to their neighbors, to other bacteria of different species. And that's where the problem arises, because many pathogens of of humans are, are environmental bacteria. This long-term exposure of environmental microorganisms to antibiotics certainly leads to antibiotic resistance development, which can make its way into human infectious diseases. Human use then, of course, anywhere that antibiotics are used is potentially a problem if they're not used appropriately. And it can be difficult to define what appropriate is. Really, Anywhere that antibiotics are used, where they are either not prescribed correctly, or they're not taken correctly, or they're used perhaps outside their intended indication, is a potential problem for the development of resistance. So human use, animal use, irrespective of, of the, the scale of that, will, will ultimately, if not appropriate, lead to antibiotic resistance development. And, and we, we, we can say for certain that human use of antibiotics has driven the emergence of of antibiotic resistance. And we see new emergence of things like colistin resistance in the past year, which is is clearly uh, clearly associated with the use of that antibiotic in animals. And already we've seen that in uh, human patients. So you said inappropriate use. So for instance, whenever someone has a viral infection like a cold, that's caused by a virus, but they give antibiotics quite typically. So how does the antibiotic resistance occur? If it's not, if it's not a a bacteria causing the infection, then what difference does it make? You raise a very important important point. The, the lack of good diagnostic techniques to determine whether or not a, a, an infection is, a, is as a result of a virus or a bacteria is a really important problem. Had we better diagnostics, we, we would have better prescribing practices. However, when you take antibiotics for an infection that is not caused by a bacterium, you're really just exposing if it's a broad-spectrum antibiotic, like, say, amoxicillin, then you have the potential to disrupt the normal microbial flora of the body, especially the gut and microorganisms. And chronic inappropriate use of antibiotics leads to emergence of resistance determinants in those gut microorganisms. Again, coming back to the idea of exposure of sub-therapeutic amounts of uh, antimicrobial to existing populations in the body um, can lead to the development of resistance. The other problem, of course, with using antibiotics for a condition that is not caused or an infection that's not caused by bacteria is that, again, disruption of the microbiota of the, of the gut can lead to changes within the gut that may be pathogenic, for example, clostridium difficile. So that can be a, a real problem, especially in elderly patients, patients that are immunocompromised. 
in addition to that, you add the antibiotics into the equation and that can really tip the balance of the gut microbiota from one that is uh, in balance and is protective to one that is essentially can be dominated by a particular pathogenic species like C. difficile. So they talk about it quite a lot in the news, sort of referring to antibiotic resistance as the apocalypse mm. of our generation. How real is it? How true is that as a phrase? I think the term apocalyptic is not particularly helpful or useful because the human race has only really been using antibiotics for 70 years or so since the discovery of penicillin and the, the widespread use of penicillin in the 40s. So the, the, the human race has really only had antibiotics for a very short period of time. We've learned in that period that if you don't use them properly, then the arsenal of compounds that you have will diminish, and we've seen that. So I, I'm not certain that apocalyptic is the right term. The human race can survive without antibiotics. But in saying that, the caveat to that is that clinical medicine, as we understand it, is underpinned by antibiotics, and without it, medicine will look very, very different. Routine procedures um, will, will, will undoubtedly carry a hefty risk of infection, untreatable infections which can lead to death. Those are, by today's standard, unacceptable risks. And therefore, the impetus is really on us to do everything we can on two levels. One is to preserve the antibiotics that we have, and the other is to ensure that there is invigoration of the pipeline of antibiotics that will come to the market. And you do that in two ways, by increasing discovery activities and ensuring that the financial incentives and the business plan for new antibiotics is present because at the moment it, it, those things are lacking. Would you say there is a diminished arsenal of antibiotics and is, is it on the government's radar that they need to address this? Yeah, there is a diminishing pipeline of antibiotics. We haven't brought a new class of antibiotic to the market uh, since the 1980s. So that's a real problem because most of the antibiotics that we, that we use today were discovered in a period known as the, the sort of golden age of antibiotic discovery between 1940s and the kind of mid-1960s. And then, really, the, the pipeline of new antibiotics in terms of new classes of antibiotics has diminished uh, to the point that we haven't had a new antibiotic in around 30 years. So the government have correctly identified this as a major problem. It's a global challenge to uh, tackle antibiotic resistance. And part, a major part of that is the discovery of new antibiotics to, to continue to underpin clinical medicine. I think the government rightly identifies this as, an, as largely an economic issue. There is a large economic driver present to ensure that antibiotic discovery is a viable activity for big pharma. And the O'Neill Review was chaired by Lord Jim O'Neill, who's a very prominent economist. And I think that really is, a, is an indication that this is a global challenge which has both a scientific and an economic perspective. What are you currently working on in terms of antibiotic discovery? In terms of antibiotic discovery, my group are, are approaching the problem in two distinct ways. The first one is trying to, to find antibiotics in environments where uh, that, that have not yet been tapped. So we are looking at um, extremophilic microorganisms that we have isolated from a uh, Triassic, so 220 million year old salt deposits uh, based in, in Northern Ireland um, and we're identifying 
new antibiotic compounds from there. The other one is to look at environments that we already have mined for antibiotics. The problem with the way we do antibiotic discovery at present is that we isolate antimicrobials producing organisms from an environment. And you can only expect in any environment to isolate about 1% of the organisms that are present there. So any approaches that allow you to tap into the great microbial diversity that is there and search for antibiotics that in, in that unculturable population has the potential to yield results. And you can do that in a couple of ways. You can do it either by metagenomics, where you take the entire genomes and mine those from any environment. And we're doing that in the salt mine as well, because, again, many of the uh, organisms are not culturable using standard techniques. Or we can look at those environments and try to culture more than 1% using uh, advanced techniques. And, and my group are using a technique that has been pioneered by Professor Kim Lewis in Northeastern, called the iChip. And we're using that iChip technology to try and isolate a larger proportion of that previously unculturable microbium. Because in that way, then, you can interrogate those organisms by doing standard laboratory screens for antimicrobial agents. And in fact, uh, Professor Lewis's group last year published in Nature the structure of a novel class of antibiotics, which is called Tizobactam, which is... Tizobactin, sorry, which they have isolated from soil bacteria, which were cultured using the iChip technique. If they were writing the class they found is a new class, mm -hmm. what difference would that make to the antibiotic pipeline on its way? It, ma it makes a big difference because we require new antibiotic scaffolds, not just derivatives of the antibiotic families that we already have. We need to keep abreast of and ahead of the emergence of resistance. And a major part of that is new antibiotics. Irrespective of how we look at the picture, we're always going to need a sustainable pipeline of antibiotics because it's an arms race. We're trying to kill bacteria and they're trying to preserve their population. So always we will need a sustained platform of discovery and development for new antibiotics, both derivations of existing classes but new classes are very important. And when you discover a new class, then you can use that as a scaffold to make first, second, third, fourth generation drugs of that family. So new classes of antibiotic will, will no doubt buy us time and space to keep ahead of resistance. So how long does that sort of research project take? So imagine from, from start, so imagine you went down to these salt mines and mm. you found a compound and in that you realised you could generate or synthesize some way of having an antibiotic-resistant molecule. And then where, where does that go from in your lab, in the research, to on, on the shelves in my pharmacy? <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a good question. The discovery part of that can take five, ten years or, or longer. And then, then you're into the, to the developmental phase of bringing a drug to market. For a university to do that, they typically need to partner up with a pharma company who will be able to help them navigate through that developmental process. Because like any any drug in development, uh, there's a very, very high attrition rate with antibiotics too. So it's not just a case of finding a compound that kills bacteria and saying that that will make a good antibiotic drug. It's not doesn't necessarily follow. So there's a high attrition rate. Many drugs that you discover, many compounds that you discover will not make it as a drug, as a pharmacokinetics or 
adverse side effect profile or bioavailability issues, solubility issues. So the timeline for getting a new from isolating the antibiotic to identifying its structure and then taking it through clinical trials can be long and protracted and, can, and it can be costly. So you, it could be 10, 15 years and it can be costly because of the high attrition rate. For every one that gets through, you might have 10 candidates that didn't make it. The difficulty with antibiotics is that the business model for the discovery of new antibiotics really requires significant reinvigoration because it's highly likely that any company, any individuals that discover antibiotics, the first thing that will happen to new antibiotics is that we will probably restrict their use. We'll be very careful about how that resource is used. So therefore, from a business perspective, that's not necessarily a very good model that you spend maybe a billion dollars to develop a drug that then doesn't get widely used because of the nature of the of the problem. So there has to be some financial incentive for big pharma to re-engage with antibiotic discovery. It's just not sustainable. It's not a, at, at the moment, it's not a sustainable issue. However, I think the appointment of Lord O'Neill as a very prominent economist to head up the government's AMR review, antimicrobial resistance review, is, is actually a, a, an inspired move because it acknowledges the very central role of economics in antibiotic resistance. Economics has a really critical role here because if the business model is not correct and there's no incentive to reinvigorate the antibiotic pipeline, then it's difficult to see how we stay ahead of antibiotic resistance. But the other important issue is that the O'Neill Review highlights the economic impact that antibiotic resistance could have. Obviously, as pharmacists, our priority is the patient. And the human cost, the, the, the toll in terms of morbidity and mortality associated with antibiotic resistance, also identified in the O'Neill Review, is staggering. So what area is your team at the School of Pharmacy at Queen's University Belfast working on? In my group, our key interest is, is chronic infection, and primarily infections that are caused by bacteria growing as what we now know as biofilms, or what we refer to as biofilms. And biofilms are surface-adhered communities of bacteria that embed themselves within a protective matrix of protein, polysaccharide, sugars, uh, extracellular DNA. Most uh, commonly seen is probably plaque. Plaque on teeth is the best known and most common example. Those kind of biofilms form really an important part of many in chronic infectious diseases. A very high percentage of infection of chronic bacterial infectious diseases are caused by bacteria growing in this way. Um, our interest has always been in finding new ways to interfere with that process of development of the uh, the biofilm because when the biofilm develops tolerance to antibiotics not resistance but tolerance to antibiotics increases and tolerance is really just an ability to persist in the presence of levels of antibiotics that would normally kill a free-floating bacterium the way we test antibiotics in the lab is with free-floating bacteria so biofilms allow organisms to basically persist in an environment 
where antibiotic stresses are, are present and subtherapeutic often uh, subtherapeutic levels of antibiotic are present so we're looking at new ways in which uh, those either antibiotics can be made to work better or that we can discover antibiotics that specifically target that particular phenotype of bacteria growing in the biofilm. Where else is, are biofilms sort of common? Biofilms are, are common in very many uh, bacterial infectious diseases. So if we think of uh, the cystic fibrosis lung, or if we think of infections that are due to indwelling medical devices, or device failure, uh, prosthetics, uh, hip prostheses and so forth that become infected, all those have a, a biofilm implicated in their etiology somewhere. Bacteria typically get on that surface of the device and rapidly proliferate over the device and, and embed themselves in a protect, protective layer. And they can essentially withstand and survive in that environment almost indefinitely. And they can withstand normal cellular immune clearance, for example, and they can also withstand antibiotic attack. So we typically see them in device-associated infections and in chronic infections of the urinary tract, of the lung, in the case of cystic fibrosis. We also see them in chronically infected wounds, uh, diabetic ulcers that become infected. Typically, we see uh, biofilms present there. In addition to, to antibiotic discovery, we're also looking for other compounds that might help antibiotics work better. For example, molecules which block bacterial conversations, if you will, so uh, in a process known as quorum sensing. So quorum sensing is a is a cell-cell communication mechanism in bacteria, which allows them to regulate across the entire population. There, uh, it's a population density dependent regulation of the of the transcription of genes within a population. So it allows essentially individual cells to behave cooperatively. And that can, that can be implicated in the development of resistance, but also tolerance to antibiotics as well. So if we can block these conversations between bacteria, we can potentially block the development of high tolerance to antibiotics, either by reducing the amount of biofilm or simply uh, directly improving the sensitivity of antibiotics uh, in those populations. Okay, so making antibiotics work better. So what role do pharmacists have in helping prevent antibiotic resistance? Pharmacists have a really important role in prevention of antibiotic resistance. And that, and that can be seen in two ways. Conserving the antibiotics that we already have and helping patients understand and educating patients. That's the, a major role a pharmacist will have is helping patients understand both their disease in many cases, but also the drugs that are used to treat that disease. And by improving patient education in when antibiotics are required, disease progression, so very often what a patient might request or expect or hope to obtain an antibiotic for might be a self-limiting condition. So pharmacists have a great role to play in educating the patient about the appropriate use of antibiotics, finishing the course, taking the drugs in the correct way that are prescribed to them, helping them look out for interactions and side effects. In addition to that, pharmacists also have a, a key role in ensuring that antibiotic prescribing practices uh, are appropriate 
and pharmacists are key players in antimicrobial stewardship. And that's really just about you ensuring that the right drug is given for the right condition at the right time. Of course, there are difficulties in, in achieving that, but pharmacists have a really central role to play in ensuring that the patients understand their condition, understand when an antibiotic is required and when one is going to be ineffective, and really just helping patients understand the whole area of antibiotic resistance and ensuring that practice for things like over-the-counter antibiotics are appropriate. Is there anything else you wanted to add? I suppose it's a, just a final word about antibiotic resistance. It, it is something that we must stay ahead of. Um, medicine without antibiotics is going to be very, very different. Recently, I was involved with a Wellcome Trust and Department of Health funded working party on alternatives to antibiotics. And whilst there are some promising uh, alternative approaches to conventional antibiotic therapy, none of those are really at a stage where they're ready, A, to come to the market in the short term, or B, to really supplant altogether the use of antibiotics. Many of those alternatives are actually going to be uh, either preventative or adjuvant in their mechanism of, of action. And the problem requires a better understanding of the marketplace. We also have to change our view of or how we view antibiotics and the value that we place on antibiotics. Because actually antibiotics have been one of the most transformational discoveries uh, in health and they've saved countless lives and we place a very minimal value on that, surprisingly. Antibiotics are cheap and they're widely available. And there has to be a move away from that, uh, that perspective on, on antibiotics. So there are promising signs that the antibiotic, the major players, the big pharma companies, are being enticed back into the field by incentives uh, where governments might uh, pick up some of the costs of clinical trials or navigating the regulatory landscape for antibiotics, increased patent uh, lifetimes for antibiotics to improve profitability. So there are encouraging signs that things are moving in the right direction. I think it would be it would be wrong to suggest that the, the picture is completely bleak. Yes, antibiotic resistance is a real problem. It's a global problem. It requires global solutions, but it also requires a general rethink of how we've approached uh, the use of antibiotics, but also their discovery. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was Professor Brendan Gilmore speaking from the School of Pharmacy in Queen's University, Belfast. If you're interested in improving your clinical knowledge, check out the Chemist and Druggist Package Update Plus. We have a wide range of learning resources so you can choose how you want to learn. Thanks for listening.